yeah, there's a disease in East Germany, but it's much more likely to spread to like Poland or Czechoslovakia than it would be to West Germany because of um, freedom of movement. I love that idea. That's going in the game. <laughs> okay. Hi, everybody. This is Soren Johnson, and you are listening to Designer Notes, a podcast about why we make games. Today, we are talking to board game designer Rob Davio, best known for his work on Rust Legacy and Pandemic Legacy. I think actually what I'd like to do maybe is jump back in to talk about some of the design issues with the game. Sure. Um, because, you know, you talked you talked about... Uh, designing it and what your process was for that and then it came out and you didn't know how it was going to do and then of course it did really really well um and uh but i think there's also another part which is you know obviously this is a very it was a very new concept so you, you know there must have been things that you didn't anticipate you know you were making a lot of guesses right yeah so, yeah yeah i was i was so when i was designing risk legacy it was it kind of started out with the idea that there's permanent change mm-hmm and, um, like, I really had to fight for it to be permanent because, like, the manufacturing people kept telling me that I had made a mistake and, and put permanent stickers. And so they changed them to peelable stickers. And, like, three times right. in the process I had to be like, no, 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 I mean permanent. Um, and that was working. And then the issue became that I, um, I would give people all these stickers and all these permanent changes right at the beginning of game one, and they were like, toddlers with matches they would just use all of them like someone would use one and the dam would break and then like i'm gonna put this on the board and i'm gonna put this on the board and they would kind of just binge on these stickers which resulted in two things one they were all gone by like game two and was it they they distributing the stickers wasn't part of the the game rules themselves at the beginning it was just um i think everyone like you everyone had a whole hand of them right like you had like five types of different things you could put on the board and everyone had like three. So in like a four player mm-hmm. game, there'd be 12 stickers that you could use, but people didn't really hold them back. Like I okay. put down a bunker and you'd put down an ammo shortage and you'd put down like mercenaries and, and some of these stickers from risk legacy. And the board quickly like became a mess by game two. Like it was like a hangover. Like they just regretted mm-hmm. like, why did we put this here? I didn't really know how this was going to affect things. Right. I want more stickers. So in, like 12 stickers wasn't enough. And then they wanted like a hundred things they could do to the board, which, which point it would become a mess. So I, I realized I'm like, I got to sort of titrate these out and give them a little bit at a time. And that's when I came up with the idea of like the envelopes and the packets and locking things away. Right. Okay. And it was really just a, an attempt to sort of control content, but very quickly. I remember, sitting at where the table I was sitting at when I got excited about this, I'm like, wait a minute, I can, I can kind of use these as like a narrative element, right? Like you do X and then Y happens. Mm -hmm. And I envisioned it like, okay, you're playing risk and, you know, dice went poorly. You made some poor decisions or whatever it's risk. And you're thinking, man, I'm not going to win. And then you could look over at a packet and think, but ah, maybe I can open this thing. Right. Mm -hmm. It felt like it was going to be a consolation prize for a lot of people. And um, I totally underestimated the power of a closed box sure, and a closed envelope, um, which was to say uh, people just went nuts for them. So 
Um, yeah, it was interesting to hear you talk about, I forget whether it was risk or pandemic, or you talked about kind of like players, it must be risk, I guess. It was risk, it was risk. The idea of players colluding, like, oh, okay, I'll lose this game. It's okay if you beat me this game, because then we can open up the envelope, right? Yeah, like we can do this thing, and people like co-opt it. Um, and, and I think the, the carry forward that I see other people doing, like, Friedman Freeze has a game called Fabled Fruit, which really mm-hmm. takes that second half. There's no permanent change. It's just about the idea of we're not going to give you all the content at the beginning, right? But then you earn it as you as you play, right? And, right. Then, and there's a lot of games that have done this in the past, which is here's the beginner mode, intermediate mode, advanced mode, and add these cards in. But it's sort of you can see it all at the beginning, and it puts it in the hands of the players to self-select what they want to play. And a lot of players, myself included, like I'm just going to play the advanced version, right? right? I'm a good gamer. Yeah, and then you get overwhelmed, and so just by hiding it and making you earn it, it it changes the tone a bit. And um, I feel like going forward, if any people are going to make legacy games, it's going to be more using that element than the than the permanent change element. Yeah, yeah, that's an interesting distinction. I never really thought of that until you you sort of you brought that up. Yeah, yeah I did it in one of the talks that I think that you were at. It was like there's yeah. there's two pillars to it. Um, I also really underestimated uh, like the need for people to win a campaign, sorry, to mm-hmm. win a campaign. You know, I said, okay, well, you know, after 15 games, this game is just going to be gone in so many different directions. I don't want to keep changing. I can't put an infinite number of stickers. I can't put an infinite number of missiles in. So I'm just going to cap it mm-hmm. for a couple different reasons. And so um, I just said, well, after... After 15 games, whoever's won the most games just gets to name the world. And it was just, to me, like a very late game afterthought. It's just sort of a right. an ending. I didn't think that it was going to have the power it did, and I really underestimated. People would play and say, like, oh, one person's already won five games, and there's only four games left, so no one can catch them, and so we've stopped playing because they already won the season, hmm. right? Like, they've, they've locked up the postseason. Right, sure. And I, I really kind of misjudge if you give people a macro goal... Mm-hmm. then they treat it very seriously, right? I, I would have wanted to go back and really pay attention to what does the campaign mean and, and how does it win and what does it mean to win and what are catch-up features so other people can get back into it. To me, it was just, I needed something after 15 games. I need a reason to end it. So I just said, eh, right. name the world, right? Right. Is and, there a reason you felt that you had to end it? Well, yeah, there's two reasons. Because at the end of each game, I was, well... It, with risk, it it stabilizes, right? What I'm saying is, after 15 mm-hmm. games, uh, you're not going to make any more change. If you have a few stickers left over, you can use them. If you've got a packet that you haven't opened, it will still open. But you're not, what you're doing is you're not doing any end game bonuses. You're not making the territory cards more powerful. You're not putting. You're not giving people more missiles because right. there was two constraints. One was the physical constraint. I could only put so many little coin symbols in the game to upgrade cards. I right. couldn't. I couldn't put a thousand stickers. I could only put so many cardboard missiles in the game to give away. But also, it felt to me like after fifteen games, you were going to end up, uh, or yeah, the game was going to end up in a design space where I couldn't really judge whether it was going to be stable. Right? If someone right. won eighteen games and had eighteen missiles, and everyone else had four, mm-hmm. they, they'd probably just win every game at that point, and then they get their nineteenth. And so it felt like that was about the edge of what people would commit to play, the material cap that I could put in, and sort of at which point the design would be so unstable that 
uh, it wouldn't be interesting anymore. And there wouldn't be any more big surprises at that point. There wouldn't be packets or envelopes. It would just be giving out more endgame goodies. And that felt like it wasn't going to do much other than destabilize it. Yeah. Now, was that on the... Was that part of the marketing at all? Like, did you make it clear to people that they should be able to play this many games? So that's interesting with Risk Legacy is there was no marketing at all. Since okay. This, right? <laughs> since this was such a underground project. Uh-huh. Um, I mean, I remember reading about it a lot in the press. I guess that's just because people were interested in it. Yeah. I mean, really what I did is I'm like, uh, you can't really show this at a convention. I mean, we've since figured it out, right? You There's like with Pandemic, they figured out a way to to demo it. But, how sorry to break track, but how do they demo it? Sounds... Well, for Pandemic Legacy Season One, they assume that most people have played Pandemic, and so they kind of set it up where you're eight turns into Pandemic or something. And they have a little setup. And they say, "Okay, you're eight turns in, and this." You happens. mean eight eight uh, months eight, in? Is that what no you mean? eight eight physical game turns? They set up. They say, "Here's January. You're okay. playing Pandemic. We've set up the board already. Like here are the cards you have. Here are the cubes that are on the board." Um, there's this thing called the legacy deck and and the, the top card says draw this when your second epidemic happens and i think they stack the deck where it's like the third card in or something yeah so you play okay. like a turn or two and then you get it and you're like oh and then you draw the card and then that's where the game starts to change on you and they right. finish out january and then i think they let them start february right okay and get like a couple turns in and then they're like okay thank you and then they reset it and they have like a disposable board it's just a sheet almost like a placemat oh, okay like a big placemat that so you can write on it and do all the stuff and, and then they're like here take this with you right and um and then they just put out a new board and reset it for like you know put the cubes on it and put everything on it so they have like extra character cards extra boards and a few other things but it's basically a resettable little demo that lets you play like the back half of january's game and the beginning of february so there right. there are ways to do it and um Pandemic Legacy 2, which will be out this fall, has a like a different base engine. It's not standard Pandemic. So, oh, really? Yeah. Okay. Um, we didn't want people to... We want to make it different enough. People have already played like 15 to 18 games of Pandemic changing in Season right. 1. And so we were like, well, we need to give you a different game before you'll want to commit to 18 games again. Right. Um, so that has a prologue in it, which is basically like, hey, before you start the... Um, the legacy game just play this once or twice until you understand the new mechanism right so the the demo gets a little easier there which is they're just going to play the prologue and there's a lot of stuff you can see on the board the board has a lot of unexplored regions of the world right mm -hmm. basically it's it's post-apocalyptic so most of the board is blank and you can see like oh we can explore north america or south america or europe or africa or asia and Asia and how do we get there and what does this mean and what is it you know you can the board itself is tantalizing enough that it should be mm -hmm. enticing during the the prologue to want to play January and see where it goes. But, um, you know, by the time this comes out, this will have already happened. But at this point, we're still trying to figure out how to make it happen. Wow. So, so it's such funny unexplored territory for me. I'm about to ask a question and I'm like, oh, I'm asking like a spoiler question on a board game podcast. So yeah, I know. Weird. I know. <laughs> Does it, uh, because I was thinking of, uh, so even if you win Pandemic Legacy the first season, like, the world still is destroyed. Um. Yeah. Yeah. Basically we couldn't judge what the end of everyone's board state was going to be at the end of right. season one. And, and to be fair, we had to start season two at the schedule we had at the time. It's been a bit, a little bit of delay because Z-Man um, 
uh, like they sold themselves to Asmodee, which delayed the game like a couple months. So maybe we had more time, but we started season two, six months before season one came out. So we didn't have any feedback or data Mm -hmm. about how it would do. And so we had to guess and we, we left us ourselves some room to learn from season one when it came out and reflect season two, but we're a third to a halfway done when season one came out. And, um, we were like, I don't, we don't know how many people are going to win, how many people are going to lose. Are they going to save the world or not save the world? Or, um, I mean, this is a mild spoiler for Pandemic Legacy, but you do it right in January. Is one of the four diseases goes problematic on you, and it's okay. entirely random. So we didn't know which would be the worst. Which area. which would be the worst area, or like you know, we suspected if Asia is harder to manage than South America. So if it ended up in Asia, you probably have a little bit harder time winning. But we didn't know for sure, and we had tried to balance it, but we had no data. So yeah. narratively, we just said, <laughs> "Well, what if it's like." It turned out to be 71. I picked the number 70. 71 years later after the events of the other one. Oh, and, wow. Okay. And the world has ended. Um, and it says it right in the opening pages of the rule book. Mm-hmm. So I'm not really spoiling anything. I got to think this through, but it doesn't matter. But Well, uh, remember. And also yeah, th- for, for... this will come out after. But yeah, for exactly. people who, who might be listening who still haven't played it. Yeah. But basically it says... Um, on the tale of, um, it's called Coda, the Coda virus. A second, a second plague was mm-hmm. hit the world, and since the world was already reeling from the first one, this one um, kind of put it under. So right. if you even if you won season one or lost season one, within a year of the end of that, a second plague came out, and the world was a mess. And mm-hmm. um, and so, therefore, it fell apart, and that let us sort of converge everyone's board state back to a common timeline, I guess. Right. So, is there anything that carries over from the players' season one session? No, we um, decided not to go that way. Well, we decided not to go that way, and I mean, there was some talk about it at the beginning, but we were trying to think of, you know, and maybe a different group of people could have could have solved this. But again, the timing and the way we started, we kind of wanted to felt like. They're narratively linked, right? It's in the same world. Uh And and if you played season, if you haven't played season one and you play season two, which will be a very small percentage, you could still play, but you're going to miss. It's like picking up a second season of television. Like, you know what's going on, but you're like missing some in jokes or some callback references. Yeah. Um, We just kind of wanted to be independent because we couldn't figure out which data to pick up from the first one and bring to the second one. So we just punted and i think it works very well we just said okay it's three generations later and the world's ended so that kind of like it just gave us a clean slate right all right do you know how um the fraxis did xcom 2 fictionally because they had kind of a similar issue so you know the they did the xcom reboot a number of years ago um and you know you're fighting off an alien invasion right and at the end of the alien invasion you you win right or potentially right Mm -hmm. like you're trying to beat the campaign and so if you beat the campaign you beat the aliens hey hooray right so what do you do for the sequel? And they basically decided that for the sequel, they were going to start with the assumption that you had actually lost the first game. Okay. Right. Instead of winning the first game, you know, and uh, which I guess is a valid way to proceed. Right. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Well, what we did is we decided win or lose the world still fell apart. Right. If you, if you won the campaign or lost the campaign, the world just tumbled because there was something that happened after, it was over because what we didn't want is people like well but i won why did this happen and we sort of had to sort of put a second narrative thing in there now what it does is at the end of season one there's some cards that kind of talk about what happened after 
Yeah. And and those are no longer canon in a sense. Like we didn't know if there was going to be a season two or what it was going right. to be. So you, those like three or four cars at the end of season one don't no longer make sense hmm. at the beginning of season two. But it's a small bit. Someone will tell me on the internet, but in general, right? I feel like it's it's an okay. Uh, what's the <laughs> right. word I'm looking for? Like glitch. Yeah, you're gonna have to retcon some of yeah retcon season and the, one yeah. out. Nice. All right, well, let's jump back to Risk Legacy for a second because another one of the things I thought was kind of interesting when I played through it was that, uh, so since I had played Risk Black Ops and really liked it, I was kind of assuming that the game was going to start with a lot of those elements in place. Um, and I was actually, I guess it's, it sort of goes into similar to the, the concept of, you know, Fable Fruit where you're unlocking the stuff as you go along, that aspect of the legacy thing where... Um, like when I first opened it up, I'm like, oh, this is more like classic Risk than I expected it to be. And like I, uh, which was to me, like a step backwards. Yeah. Um, and, uh, but then eventually those, the, the mission elements came into play, but I think it was only what, like it was, took maybe four games through or something. Yeah, four games through. Yeah. There's a couple things that happen. I mean, kind of like the, the tutorial or the prologue I was talking about in season two of a pandemic, I changed mm-hmm a bit of things on risk like you expanded from a spawn point rather than populating the board yep and you were going for four victory points you know you had to like capture each other's castles or you know right. headquarters and um and, and so there were a couple other things that I wanted people to get their head around for a, a couple games before I ramped up the complexity so that's mm-hmm. why I put missions like kind of tucked them to the side cuz like the first game of risk legacy is often for people like 20 minutes yeah right and and they're thinking, like, what just happened, right? Like, oh, I guess you have to protect your headquarters a lot more than I thought. But then you immediately get to change the board. You get to put some uh, city down, and you put some stickers down. And the whole idea was, well, that was cool. Let's do that again. Right. And yeah. hopefully those first four games are maybe a total of two hours. And there's something else that's likely to unlock and open up um, before then as well. There's, like, a draft, right? Right when when it starts out, it's... um one person rolls a die and they pick their starting location and they pick their faction. They sort of get like loaded with advantages. Mm-hmm. Um, but then as the game grows, you, those will compound. So I put a, like the, one of the first things that opens is, Oh, here's a draft that allows sort of breaks up the starting choices so that it's a little more balanced. Again, I could have put that right in the first game, but it right. just added complexity and it wasn't really necessary for a 20 minute game. Right. So, so a lot of this content in all the, legacy games i've done have been like i got some cool stuff in here but you're really not going to need it for a couple games so let me just put it off to the side and then once you've played it you get it and you go oh i see how this works and it's it just helps um the learning process and that's something i really kind of picked up from video games you know tutorial i mean video games sometimes do it well and sometimes like all right soldier we're gonna duck let's duck 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 you know press square to duck press square to duck press square you're like okay i get it um so it's a lot of that same idea and trying to um integrate it into a board game like just in time rules yeah 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 i i I think i think you're right that that's going to come into play with a lot of games because i definitely anytime i see a game that has the you know like you said the beginner or the normal the advanced rules like you know i just ignore the beginner rules because i just assume that's like a I, I'm not really going to know whether I like the game if I just play like the non-real version of it, you know? Right. Um, but, you know, still at the end of the day, like it was probably a number of games that I decided I didn't like because there was just way, you know, 
there was just you know i tried to bite it all off alpha at once so yeah i mean i think that's the tendency you know we have we we make games so we assume like all games are going to be too easy for us and we're all experts and i think a lot of people feel it's not just game designers but yeah. sometimes there are games i play that have like three modes to play and i like the basic one the best i feel like the other stuff adds crap that didn't need to be in there right it just complicates it uh, yeah. personally actually i am not a fan of games with multiple ways to play in multiple levels because i feel like the job of the designer is to decide what the best game is like there's so mm -hmm. many games out yeah right if i open a box and it's like here's 14 different ways to play i'm like well now you've just given me your job like you tell me <laughs> how to play so now i'm like responsible for reading all the different versions and then picking up the version that i want to play and then trying a couple and do i like this and i might not get to the version i would actually like like i'd rather have the designers pick here's how you play and then i play it and say i didn't like it someone yeah. else did yeah. um so what i like about the legacy stuff is i can kind of sneak some of that stuff by people like i can give them different ways to play without them having to make the decision like i'm telling them okay now play this way now play this way now play yeah, this yeah. way and it puts the decision back back in the designer's hands. So what did you see? So after Legacy came out and you started to see how people were responding to it, like what did you see, you know, fairly early on that you thought, you know, oh, I probably should have done that differently if I had been able to, you know, expose it to, you know, actually, you know, get a huge amount of feedback instead of, you know, the limited amount you can get for a board game. I don't other than like what we talked about, which is I would have made the the scoring system and the end game, like end campaign right. thing mm -hmm. a little bit tighter. And I would have, uh, I think one of the packets is sort of, it's got these like homeland rules, which just mm -hmm. seem kind of unnecessary. Like you have to look at the back of the card and there's just like a lot of math that I, I think it's one of those ideas that it isn't worth the cognitive load sure. to play. Um there's not too much that I would have changed about that because it's just it's sentimentally to me, you know, like just a brand new like sort of subgenre that I carved out. And I'm really mm -hmm. proud that I got most things right. I mean, mm -hmm. for a while I joked that my gravestone were gonna, was going to say, yeah, but it's still risk. I mean, a lot of people <laughs> are like, right, like, oh, this is cool, but it's still risk, but it's still risk. But I'm like, I could, you know, I could only do so much to to change what the underlying mechanics were. Do you think um, you're for, you think how, hmm, you think Risk was a great game to start with on the Legacy it, series or you, you know, think it could have it was, been better? Or, go ahead. Well, it was the only one I had. Sure. I understand that. Right. So like, I had to, you know, yeah, I had I'm to, imagining like an alternate world where someone, another designer like decided to push this idea, you know, like, like in a vacuum, what would be the idea? Like, think of it this way. Like if you could grab any board game IP out there. Yeah, at your well, whim. Like, what would you grab? What would be the ideal game to start with? Well, like, how, how close is risk to that? Well, it turns out that Pandemic was a good match, right? Right. It, you know, it was a better base engine than Risk, and it turns out that co-op play on this, which I thought wasn't necessarily going to work, actually works better because it just becomes a big collaborative project. And mm -hmm. um, I, I don't mind Risk. I mean, I don't play it now. I'm you know, out of Hasbro, and I met a lot of games, but I feel like just about every gamer has played risk and just about every gamer has sort of moved on or gotten over risk. Like right. I played it, but there's better games out there and I can't really disagree, but everyone at some point had played it. And if you say like, there's a new risk game, people might have a mm -hmm. negative reaction, but almost everyone knew how to play. Yeah. And what I really wanted risk legacy to be was for people who had played risk and solved it and said, well, you just go to Australia and here's my strategy and be like, well, that doesn't work anymore. Right. Here's a game that 
people can counter your strategy, then they can counter your strategy. So it it checked a lot of boxes of what the first legacy game had to be. I had pitched it for Clue, and I still mm-hmm. think that that would have um that would have worked just fine. I do, you know people have joked about Monopoly. I could make it work, but I don't think it would have worked. Monopoly is too much of a a flashpoint in the gaming industry. Like people, casual Monopoly players wouldn't want a legacy game, and people who play right. a legacy game wouldn't want Monopoly. So that's worse than Risk. Um, yeah, I got a criteria that I sort of evolved over the years as I thought about legacy games, which is it needs a pretty simple core engine that is expandable, and it needs something where you can tell a story on top of it. I mean, that's really it. And so something like a Pandemic or a Risk are simple core engines. Something like Seafold, I built a more complex engine on top of, and then I think it was harder to learn and harder to go from there. Right. Um, The people who are playing Seafall now were the people who I wanted to play it are really enjoying it. They wanted a deeper experience. They wanted a role-playing experience, but I think right. it it didn't get to a wider audience because a lot of people are like, I don't want to play 15 two-hour games. Yeah. Well, I think it's I think it was definitely huge that people already felt like they could understand half of the game when you were explaining it to them conceptually, you know, uh, when Risk Legacy, you know, it was originally being pitched, right, like to people or, you know, was being pitched to consumers. Um, right. Like if if it was all just from scratch, I don't know. You know, I think it would be definitely had been. It would have been kind of that niche product you thought it might have been that yeah. didn't sell a lot but influenced stuff greatly. I, um, I think that's exactly what um, would have happened. Is that right? You can sit down and say, okay, we're going to play Risk or something pretty close to it. But here are the things that are kind of different. Like you're going to get yeah. these stickers and you're going to have permanent change and you know, and people will be mm-hmm. like, whoa, okay, let's try this. And then twenty minutes later. It was really meant to be like that, that you know, almost like pre-credit sequence. Yeah. Right. So you play twenty minutes or half an hour, and you're like, "All right, I'm intrigued." Yeah. Right? Yep. What's yep. next? Yeah. Cool. So, well, speaking know, of risk is what ahead. it is, but I think it worked really well for this as a as a pilot. Yeah. Cool. All right. Well, let's transition to the pandemic then. Um, let's okay. talk about about how that worked. Um, so you guys, uh, it's funny. I. Th- Maybe I'm misremembering this, but from the pandemic talks at GDC this year, it uh, seems like one of the initial conversations from you guys, one one version of the story is that initially, you know, the, the response to should we do pandemic legacy was like, yes, absolutely. And the, the other story was like, oh, no, wait, no, no, this sounds like a terrible idea. So um, I was. <laughs> yeah, no, no one thought it was a terrible idea. I had a lot of concerns. Okay. So I, I end up leaving Hasbro in 2012. Mm-hmm. And, it, and it worked out really well because Hasbro in April of 2011 announced that they were moving the games division to corporate headquarters in Rhode Island after right. years of promising us they weren't. And it was all sort of very poorly done, like just stereotype of bad corporate stuff. Right. And my then fiance, now wife, we were getting married in September of that year, and that was when the move was. So we were both going right. to either be out of work or have a job 90 minutes away from where my kids from my first marriage are. Yeah. So we uh, we tried to make it work for a year down there, kind of driving back and forth, and we had a little apartment down there, and it, it, yeah. just, it just was a mess. But yeah. luckily in November of that year, um, Risk Legacy came out, so I could leave Hasbro the next year and be at Gen Con with mm-hmm. even though I had done a number of things, that was like a big shiny calling card, right? It had caught right. people's attention. So 
um, it let me go in, in kind of a good place. Um, so I spent about a year doing mostly consulting work back to Hasbro, actually. It was a very okay. amic amicable breakup. Right. That's um, nice. Yeah. And, and then in 2013, so a year later after I left, I was at Gen Con and found out that Matt Leacock was looking for me. Mm -hmm. And uh, I didn't pay much attention to him. Like, oh, maybe he wants to do a pandemic legacy. Ha, ha, ha. But like, I don't know. Maybe he just wants to ask me a question. Right. right. Um, and we didn't get in touch with there for weeks. Like, I forgot. And then I saw a pandemic and said I should get in touch with him. And then I didn't have his email. And then, like, I saw he was on Twitter. I mean, it was just sort of this could have gone wrong a number of different yeah. ways. And you'd never, you'd never met him before? I'd never met him before. I had played Pandemic a couple times. You know, I had enjoyed mm -hmm. it. But, it, you know, yeah. I hadn't. It wasn't like I was a big fanboy. Like, oh, I'm going to meet Matt. Right. Right. And and Pandemic, granted, at the time was starting to grow, but it wasn't quite the the brand that it is now in terms right. of sales and um, expansions. I think it was just really starting on that path. Yeah. And um, we traded email addresses, and he sent me an email saying, are you interested in maybe doing a Pandemic Legacy together? And I, mm -hmm. I forgot about my response um, until he reminded me of it years later. I just put yes in like, 150 point type and sent it back and um i think my response was enthusiastic but it was this it was this idea that i didn't think it would be the thing that it became mm -hmm. what i thought was oh this is a good next step to my career to work on an independent game with a known designer right um and kind of bring some of this legacy stuff that i did you know I'm, in my mind seafall was going to be the big thing and pandemic would be something that would just be like a Maybe I'll make some money off it. Maybe I'll get to make some contacts. Maybe I'll get to yeah. see how someone else works. Like, I, I wasn't hesitant about it. I thought it was a good idea, but neither Matt nor I thought, like, well, this is it. This is a big slam dunk, going to get a lot of attention sort of game. Where I had hesitations is I put a lot of campaign balancing elements into risk by having the players um, police themselves. Right. right. So if you think about regular balance within a game and you have a competitive game, if you give people tools to curb the leader or the or the game itself keeps a runaway leader and you get rubber banding effects and a bunch of other game design stuff um then everyone can have a, a in most cases can have a a, a good game mm -hmm. and so with a legacy game that's sort of that's sort of like compound interest in that you can really um you know you don't want to get to game 10 and it's sort of like well the game's over no one's going to get back into it um, mm -hmm. So I said to Matt, I said, I don't, I don't know how we're going to do this in a co-op game. I've given it some thought. I had like half an idea for something. And I'm like, the game's just going to beat you up. Mm -hmm. So I went into it kind of thinking, well, this sounds like a good idea. Let's have a few phone calls and meetings. But I didn't think we were going to get off the starting blocks with it. Right. Or or if we did, it was going to not go anyplace interesting. So um, I was excited. He was excited. But I had just a lot of cautions and was undervaluing what it was going to become. So what, uh, so how did you guys, how did you guys begin then? Like, what was the, um, well, I remember we talked on the phone when I was walking around my side yard. I just happened to remember thinking like, don't make an idiot out of yourself in front of this guy. Mm -hmm. Um, and then he worked for a company at the time, um, that did, uh, that does like, is basically Skype, but it's a little right. more, a little more collaborative. And, um, so we had this system. He's like, well, let's just me because he's on the west coast and i'm on the east coast like let's just mm -hmm. have some video meetings and, and see if we can do it and there's the usual collaboration um early steps that happen i mean i think a lot of people don't realize like you know game design is just coming up with a lot of bad ideas until you find a good one and when you're right. working with someone else that you don't know you don't want to put out a whole bunch of bad ideas <laughs> and have them think 
this guy doesn't know what he's talking about. <laughs> so there's this real, I don't know, maybe is it true in the video game industry as well? Like you just don't want to be like, how about this? And get excited and everyone in the room goes, no. Yeah. Um, I think that uh, in the video game industry, it's more a question of people are, are uh, sometimes anxious of like showing off their prototype before they feel like they're ready. It's ready, you know? Um, and uh, so, yeah, people are, people are anxious about that. But um, well, I don't know. I've only worked on projects where the designers are also the programmers. So mm-hmm. I have I actually have, have not taken part in a lot of those type of typical design beings where people just throw out lots of ideas. Um, yeah. You know. Well, yeah. So, well, I, I design and quote program as well. Right. In the, but, but, you know, like if it's Matt's game and I don't want to be like, we should do this, we should do this. And then he's like, you don't really understand pandemic at all, do you? Right. Or, or something sure, like yeah, that. Yeah, so yeah. there's this like going back and forth, but we really quickly, um, found our rhythm. Mm-hmm. Like I, uh, I think I've described designing a game of driving a, a truck on like wet sand. Like it's just spinning your wheels and like sand kicking up and you don't think you're making any progress. But every time you look back, you've come a little bit. Right. Right. And it's this wavy line and like, you're not sure where you're going and stuff. And I, it just felt like we were just making steady progress yeah. pretty quickly. And I remember saying to my friends who had been playing Seafall for, you know, like six months or nine months. And I put this on the table and like, we're playing January, February, March, and it's just cooking. I said, damn it, this game's going to be better and come together faster than Seafall. Right. Like <laughs> I, I just knew it. Right. You just, <laughs> like it didn't have the problems. And I had already, by doing risk and then spending a year on Seafall trying to figure out how to do a new one, like the sophomore album right. sort of thing of like, how does this work? Like I really went into pandemic with a lot more knowledge of mm-hmm. legacy what did systems. You kn- so what did you know you wanted to do? Or like, what were the improvements or what were the things you wanted to do differently? Um, it's, it's, it's hard to get my head back to that point, but it's like, I had solved a lot of it with risk. And then with Seafall, I ran into new problems, which was more like it's it's usually the connections between the games. Mm-hmm. And then making sure that the games are their own individual elements. One of the things I did wrong in Seafall at the beginning is I, I let too many things carry forward. It wasn't like a empire building game. So mm-hmm. of course you keep your buildings and of course you keep your ships, because only like a couple years passed, the buildings didn't burn down. There's like all these assumptions based on the real world, but what happened was it didn't become individual games. They all became like chapters in a larger game. Right. And um, people would play it and they would not care about losing game one, game two, game three, game four, because right. by game five, they, they, they had built this engine that they were unstoppable yeah. and the people who had actually tried to win, mm-hmm. um, you know, were now behind because they had done the right thing. And, and so there was a whole bunch of weird systems mm-hmm. designs. That, so I, one of the things I'd learned is you know, reset people back to start as much as possible, hmm, but that right. let, let them get further faster in every game, right? right? So don't put too many things on board. And I'd done that in Risk, right? Like you had your armies and you had your headquarters and you played a game of Risk and then you kind of put it all away, except there were like a few stickers on the board right. and stickers on cards and new yeah. powers. But and sort everyone... of something you like accidentally inherited from Risk, which was probably to your benefit, I suppose. Yeah, right. because I spent like a long time, like a year with Seafall, ignoring that and trying to make it and, and then running the problems. I'm at the end of Seafall, like, you know, the game that's out now, you build a building and it gives you a, a, a buff and then the building just goes away and, and no one has a problem with that but um yeah no i I can definitely relate to that issue like i've been surprised how many times in my career i've tied myself into knots over something which i thought 
some sort of game mechanic which doesn't make much that sense if you think about it, but just works. And like, you know, the <laughs> and at the end of the day, like pe- people are accepting of a lot of things in a board game if it just seems to fit with the mechanics, you know. Um, yeah, but it's it's interesting. Like in Pandemic and in Risk, no one ever complained like, oh, the game's over and we're going to just undo all the work we did. Like we're going right. to undo our research station. We're going to take our armies off the board. And then the next yep. game we're going to start. Yeah. Seafall was the only game where you play the same character, like the same yep province game after game and people i see on the internet now are still very upset like i built up this whole thing in my mm-hmm. game and then the game ended like two turns before i was going to do some cool stuff and i'm yeah. really mad that i lost all that effort and have to start over even though mm-hmm. every legacy game does that yeah. i don't know if it's because it's a deeper game or it's you're the same character yeah i wonder if that's complex, a fictional thing i mean I, it, or it's the fiction i don't know what it is but it bugs people well i think a big part of it might just be but, you know, again, like people are used to playing Risk and Pandemic as one shot games. So, you you know, if you didn't do that, that would almost even be a bigger change. Right. Whereas yeah. since Seafall is just something, you know, you made out of, you know, you made out of whole cloth. Um, people are coming to it and they're kind of hoping probably for as much permanence as is possible. Right. So they're like looking for places for permanence. Um, yeah. And um yeah, it ended up being like really weird. So like let's say you have a building that gives you a power and it's persistent. The costing gets all messed up. Mm-hmm. Right? So I need to basically have you spend a lot. If you if you spend a little money to get it, mm-hmm. then it's going to be very overpowered if you sort yep. of have this building again and again and again until someone comes and burns it down, right? If right. I I'll just to throw out some numbers, I spend 5 gold, which isn't very much, and I buy it and I got it for 8 games. Like that's a right. huge in- investment. So then I can raise the cost and say, okay, it costs 30 gold, but once you build it, you're going to have it. So now it feels like it's costed right until you have it, and then the next turn I come burn it down, at which point you're mad because it took you like two games to buy it. You had it yeah. for one turn because now it's way too valuable, so you've in- 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 incentivized other people to burn it down. So then you make it a low cost but make the power really weak because it's going to yeah. be an ongoing power, at which point someone buys it and the power is so weak and forgettable that you forget to use it and no one cares about burning it down because it was barely worth it to begin with. So you get all these weird things from, from permanent powers. Yeah. Yeah. How do you balance things from one game to versus 10 games? You know? Yeah. But I mean, beyond that, it's when it's up to the players to decide which one's important to them. Right. Like that's the ultimate problem. Right. Like if you told them, well, it's the 10 games that matter. Well, then, okay. Then you've just made a huge game that's going to last 20 hours or whatever. And maybe that's not a great idea, but at least then everyone knows what's going on. But, you know, if you're in this middle ground where it's not clear whether people should care about winning each round versus winning the campaign, you know. Mm That seems really problematic. Yeah, I had a lot of design loop problems that sort of, once I decided it was going to be more of a traditional board game, you know, that resets, mm-hmm. um, I, I I found my my feet under me in that sense. And there was timing issues with that. You know, the games are like three hours long, which is longer than I wanted in general and certainly longer than I wanted for a campaign game. Mm-hmm. Um, now that I've been done for... Um, what I've been done a year. I think I've been done with the design for a year, a little bit. Mm-hmm. And, um, and it got some reviews and saw some things and step back. Like, I feel like I could go back to Seafall now and, and take the play time down to like two thirds mm-hmm. of what it is and, and get rid of some stuff that seems so vitally important because sure. I think the market has shown, um, 
that by and large they want a smaller experience if you're going to play it 12 or 15 times sure and, and yeah. that um i was definitely overcompensating from leaving hasbro where i'd worked on operation and trivial pursuit and all these sort of like real simple games that i i had a had a bit of a chip on my shoulder to prove that i could do a big boy game so mm-hmm. i either should have made a big sprawling like two hour like high seas game or a seafall legacy game but i kind of put them together and by and large it works but i think hindsight being 2020 i rather have made a smaller game i mean if i had to do it now i would i would make seafall to be this 45 minute to one hour adventure swashbuckling game not that much different than it is now and not Mm -hmm. even think about it being a legacy game until i had that tight simple engine done and then being like okay now let's turn it into a legacy game but i was sort of Working on game one, I was working on like the first five games in the series before game one was stable or game one was a little slow. And I'm like, that's okay. Game two gets better. And like, you know, Pandemic was a good game that we built on. And Risk was a good game for 1959. It may not be now. And then I built on it. And Seafall, I tried to say like, okay, somewhere in the first four games, it will be good. And like that was um, just me. Like these are the things that I was figuring out when I started Pandemic. Right, I figured out like resetting the board, and feedback loops, and always incentivizing people that winning is better than losing, and remove as many things from the board as po- really make the games feel like individual games. And and so these were some of the things that when I started Pandemic, we didn't have to drive around and and sort of be confused by because I had done that all on my own for a year. Yeah, yeah, you know, it's interesting because I'm thinking again. I'm sort of thinking about some comparisons with video games and like there's a number of video games that exist on multiple levels you know like a game like XCOM is an obvious one right where you have the tactical level and then you have the strategic level and um and these games often tend to have problems if the if if they have sort of like too much depth at both of the levels um because you kind of need what's the right way to put it like you don't just add the the complexity of both parts together. They kind of like multiply together. Yeah. You know, and uh, so you really need to like be simpler than you would be by, inst- than you would instinctively be for, you know, probably both of those levels. Um, so, yeah. Yeah. It's so easy to look back on some. I mean, I always say that, you know, you get more play testing in the first day that a game is out than you did in the years of development, just because so many people buy and play or within the first week, you know, probably in the case of board games, by the time you get the feedback and read the reviews and the comments. And when I start hearing them and reading the reviews and the comments, I'm like, oh, none of this really came out in play testing. But mm-hmm. also the play testers were people who said, I want to play a big two hour swashbuckling adventure yeah. game. And yep. then the early reviewers were people and players were like, I liked Pandemic Legacy. I'm going to play Seafall. Yeah, sure. And so it was like the wrong audience or the unexpected audience was finding it, which is the side effect of having such success with Pandemic Legacy set slightly false expectations for Seafall. Like this was going to be, you know, and so it ended up being too many were made. And most of them them sold. And it still sold, honestly, uh, five to ten times better than the average board game that comes out. But it, it, it couldn't live up to its own expectations. Well, it's tough to gauge feedback when a game doesn't build an audience organically, when it has sort of an audience thrust upon it because yep. they think it means this or they think it means that. Um, like, like I, um, for, you know, for the game I just made, Offworld Training Company, like sometimes when, you're, when, you, when I go through sort of, sort of the Steam user reviews, I'll get stuff that's like, this game is nothing like Civilization. And I'm like, well, 
<laughs> you're yeah. right it is nothing like civilization i i did work on the civilization games but that doesn't mean this game has anything to do with civilization and it's like i just it's hard to even know like what to do with stuff like that and a lot but the thing is there's a lot of people who are less explicit about that right and they're just they're just like oh this isn't what i expected or i didn't you know i didn't like this or I didn't like that and um you know it's just it's just it's hard to judge that type of feedback right it's it's very hard and i mean i think the wonderful advantage of being a, a game designer in, in the 21st century is your name gets attached to something so mm -hmm. i put out a game and as long as it does all right i put another game people go oh i like this i know this guy he did this mm -hmm. um, the downside is like an author or like a film director or something people expect your work to fit within a preconceived notion of what you've done so if you right. want to if uh, jk rowling wants to make a more adult you know, right. content non-wizard book, everyone's going to be like, mm, well, it's not Harry Potter, is it? Right? I mean, that's the extreme <laughs> yeah. example of extreme success. But in general, you know, Stephen King came up with a pen name to write non-horror yeah. stuff because if you wrote a non-horror, people are like, where is this? I, I wanted a horror book. That's why I, I bought the book with your name on the cover. So, you know, I'm just realizing now and I'm kind of fortunate enough to be in a place where my name is a little bit of like a weird brand. You know, like right. it has some, it, it means something to people when they hear it. And so... Mm -hmm. The object, I think my goal is to uh, consider that when making a game, but not be a slave to it. Not be like, I can't make this game I really want to make because it doesn't fit my brand. Right. But at the same yeah. time, if I'm excited about something that's different, recognize like, okay, I just need to be careful. I communicate this to people and say, this is different from stuff I usually do. And and just let people know. And it's, it's I know it's weird. I'm still figuring it out. Yeah. All right. Well, let's just jump back to Pandemic for a little bit. Um, yeah. And so you guys were developing. So I'm curious how you guys actually sort of logistically develop the game, because like there's lots of people in the video games industry who work like collaboratively in different locations, but they're kind of working on a shared, you know, they have source safe or, you know, they have Perforce or something. Right. And so they're they're you know, they're both working actively on, you know, a version of the game that's essentially in the cloud somewhere. Right. Mm -hmm. um, and whereas, you know, I can imagine board game collaborators working who like are physically together every day, but like, was it, you know, like I presume you guys have, you know, you would draw a board and you'd have, you'd have rules and I assume you made good use of Google docs, but like, it seems like it must've been kind of a challenge to figure out like kind of who was controlling what aspect of it. I mean, I'm just curious. It just seems like it would yeah, be hard it's, to um, do. It's actually not as hard as you would think. And, and in okay. the, what it was, it been four, four and a half years since we started season one, Technology is only well. Technology has helped, and we've got our system down, so it's yeah. all kind of second nature. Um, where uh, we meet over video yeah. chat and do screen sharing, and Matt will be in charge of like we have a Google Doc for a design doc that we just keep track of our notes as we're talking. Right. I have a rule book that I manage. And okay. he manages basically a giant Illustrator, Adobe Illustrator file with all of the cards and the components and the, and the board graphics. Okay. And I can see on the shared screen what he's working on, like on the board. A lot of mm -hmm. stuff we do when we're not face-to-face. -face. Like, okay, I'll make all these changes. You don't have to watch me move lines around. Okay. Um, but that's interesting. There are, you do guys, you do have a certain sense of like ownership over certain parts of the, the, the product itself. Like, uh, yeah, we, we have, we have the rules and. Yeah, we have evolved into that. He's much more meticulous and, and much faster at Adobe Illustrator than I am. So mm -hmm. he's just going to do a better, cleaner job of keeping that file organized. I'm much more of a rough-it-out concept person. 
Right. Um, but we end up sort of having a file in the cloud because these um, all our documents are, are synced to Google Drive, which then resyncs them down to our individual hard drive. So if he sure. makes a change to the the game board, right, you know, um, it will sync and it will be reflected on my hard drive within a couple minutes. And the only thing that we have to be careful of is we never work on the same file at the same time because we honestly have no idea how Google handles that, right? <laughs> Whether we're just going to be writing over each other's changes sure. back and forth. Um, but since he he manages that most of the time. Like if he's going to go into the rule book, he'll tell me I'm going into the rule book. Don't open it. And I'm like, but that's a couple times on a project vice versa. Like I'm going to go through and edit all of the cards just to clean up the the text, which is mostly mm -hmm. my domain. I'll say, so don't open the card file for the next couple hours or ask me if you do. But other than those, we each have our domains and they're sort of sync. So I could just open up a game board and take a look at it at any time. And that allows us to just print at our own houses and make our own play test kits and play them okay and so how would you guys play the game initially would you like early on were you just play it yourself with some friends before you inflicted mm -hmm. it on, on other people basically or yeah yeah we um we're on season three right now which i'm only telling you because this right our interview won't come out for a while and by that right. it'll be it'll be obvious um so we really have our rhythm down now right we're, for season three we're in it where We've got a yet a whole new engine that we're working on, and we've got the prologue, and we've got January, February into March, and we've each played with our friends or solo player with our spouses the prologue or various forms of it a couple times, and we right. brought it to the publisher last week. We we're out there and we played it with them and found a few more things, but really, there's just a lot of iteration um, just to ourselves, like into the prologue, January, February, just a whole bunch of times, and then maybe with our close game groups just to find sort of gross errors mm -hmm. um but we're getting to the the first real milestone which is we will make kits and it's tedious in a legacy game we can't just let people print and play like we want to have them have the whole experience so everything's locked away and uh sometimes there's stickers sometimes we just put a thing of scotch tape in the game right. like right here's a piece of paper and a piece of tape <laughs> like just, just tape it down like we're not going to go to sticker paper yet how many of these are you able to do each month so it's not necessarily by month so when we get to this next step um we mm -hmm. will probably make two we'll have two different groups play it okay um, but we'll have these groups play it and record every minute of their yeah. gameplay mm -hmm. and we'll and have them you'll do so if you if you you do that but how many times do you think you do that during during the whole development cycle yeah. five to seven but okay. it's between two to four groups yeah and then so you have like, something like 20 playthroughs you know yeah but the first time we'll say hey we're uh we got a prologue january february into march it's rough yeah. like it may fall apart um it may be completely unbalanced but you guys are veterans you know all that just play it and we'll 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 see from what you're doing how far off this is right so they only have to play um a couple games you might even tell them like if you lose a month just just go the next month anyway right we just mm -hmm. are curious about some macro systems at this point right um how much do you so if you, you know, if you come up with a new idea new card new mechanic new whatever like do you usually try to self-play it first before you, you send it out yeah so we played the prologue and we played like january and february um at this point like we're pushing just to get something on the table in front of strangers. Mm -hmm. And we've, since this is our third time, we kind of have a sense of 
well, this will work or this will be close enough or this might sure. need tuning or this might be costed wrong. But we're looking again, like sort of like gross systems. Do people like the theme? Do people like the underlying big mechanics? Is mm-hmm. it is the pacing right? Are we giving him too much mm-hmm. um, at once or is the pacing good, but the new ideas are too complicated or like people can't mm-hmm. get their head around them? So we're looking for sort of yeah big did, issues. Did you have any major dead ends with season one? Yeah. That you, you pulled out because of the, the play tests or... Yeah, no, or just ta- in general. I think um, I can't remember. You weren't at the first talk where Matt and I went through our. Um, no, I was. was I was more. at both. I was at. Both oh, you were both. Yeah. Um, our audience was not. So yeah, your audience. Free. <laughs> yeah. So. Um, yeah, we did. So the games divided into months, and so there's like basically twelve different games in the box. Sometimes uh-huh. you play them once. Sometimes you play them twice, and. Mm-hmm. Um, and we get to the point where we had like the summer months of June, July, and August, and we kind of mm-hmm. knew that what we wanted the players to do then we wanted them to search for well originally we wanted them to search for things right mm-hmm. MacGuffins, like find the transmogrifier and right. the dna splicer like like you know the the secret data file mm-hmm. um eventually when we were talking about with tom layman who did uh race for the galaxy and sure. has also done a lot mm-hmm. of pandemics with matt he said no 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 have them look for people people are more interesting rescuing mm-hmm. a person's more interesting than finding a you know a Thing. data drive yeah so we switched it and we um, we thought at this point, okay, people are really going to be bored of Pandemic. Or not bored, but like, you know, there's, they're go- we got to give them something big and new and different. And so we came up with like a separate board that almost zoomed the camera in. All right, we're going to search in Paris. So here's a board and it kind of represents any city. Actually, I was saying we just need a river running through the middle and a city on the left and a city on the right. And it covers mm-hmm. 90% of the cities in the, in the world. Right. Um, and, yes, that's true. Yeah, and all of them in Europe. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Um, and and so we just abstracted it down to like a very tactical cat and mouse. You know, the bad guys are going to catch you and where am I going to move? So like it was like you put your player in, in Paris on the main board and then you moved him over to this board. So it's like we like zoomed in on it and yeah. you weren't even on the main board anymore and you kind of stayed there as long as you wanted and then came back out and even now talking about it narrow like conceptually i'm like that sounds really cool Mm -hmm. um but in reality you know the game already takes up a ton of space you've already got everything going on you got these stickers you got these folders you got these boxes and also need to effectively put a second small game board next to the first game board Mm -hmm. somewhere where the person across the table can't even see their pawn and and these sound like silly things but tabletop games are played at a table in real space so usability becomes a real issue so it failed the usability test. It failed the comprehension test. People got mm-hmm. it. And at no point were like, oh, yeah, they're all like, oh, like they, <laughs> they were like how yeah. most of the time when like you open up a big rule book or something and you just yeah. don't want to learn it. It was like, I don't want a whole new game. Yeah. I just want to keep playing the game that I'm playing. What and, was, I mean, what was your high level purpose to add, trying to add that? I mean, it doesn't it doesn't strike me as like something that's obviously. It just seems like extra stuff, right? Like. It's well, not... that's, that's, yeah, that's the problem. Like when, when you're building one of these legacy games, you know, we're talking about, it, and I think it's a bit of like what happens maybe with a lot of design is you feel like it's very tired and, and familiar at that point. Cause it's been designed. Mm-hmm. I've seen it and seen it and seen it. So I assume that everyone else, by the time they get to June is going to be like, man, I need some new fresh stuff. Cause this yeah. is very samey samey. Well, they haven't spent nine months talking about it eight yeah. hours a day. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think our assumption was like, we need to just give them something big and different and more so that like, we knew the back half, 
like just to get through the summer months without it feeling like more of the same. Um, and it, players just didn't need that, right? Yeah. Like, our, and and so what happened both in season one and in season two is we would get like through July in our playtesting and then watch the playtest groups play and realize, oh no, by and large, we have 12 months of content that we've crammed into seven. Like people are overwhelmed. So we would say like, instead of putting these two things in March, we'll put one in March and one in April. Yeah. And then this moves back. And then these two ideas that were in July, one goes to July and one goes to August. And suddenly we're like at November and mm -hmm. we just need to kind of button it up. Like I think as a designer, we forget that... um people need some time to integrate the ideas and just give them like one thing at a time. And that's something yeah. we're looking at in season three right now. And why we want to push it out. is just the way the design's working right now at the beginning of March, you kind of just get like a fire hose worth of new information. Yeah. And yep. I have a lot of concerns that it's going to be too much. And so far we haven't been able to figure out what can be punted for like what can be cut or what can be moved out of that. Like if yeah. we give them this and it needs that, if we give them that, then it needs this other thing. And then we need to do this, and then we need to do this, and suddenly you get a box of, of stuff. And I really hope it's not like the search thing where people go, "Ah, I was just enjoying your game, and now you, yeah, now you, well, you uh, unloaded it on me." Yeah. Well, when you add a sort of a separate game off to the side, I mean, you're also just kind of rolling the dice, right? Like, you know, the stuff that works in Pandemic Legacy works because it's like a modification to something that you know is already fun, right? Yeah. Whereas you know, if you add this sort of like auxiliary game. There's just a chance it's not going to be a you know it's not going to be a great game or it's not going to be like at the same level as the the base game right so um, yeah it's yeah. obvious in retrospect right and and like playtesters very much were like you had me till there and then like yeah, they yeah, would yeah. just want to give up like because the game was getting harder and harder and there were more rules to remember and instead yep. of being like hey here's one more rules and ultimately with pandemic. Season one, the search thing just became a little tiny card and it just yep. became an action. Like you spend an action in a city to move a token along a card. Like it's just a track that you're trying to complete. Yeah. And there's different things you can do to move the track faster and there's ways that the track will slow you down. But it just became this really abstract thing. And we we're like, that can't be it. <laughs> it's too simple. It's too simple. And then people played it and they would get to that point. And they're like, oh, this is cool. Now we get to, like they were just right on board. It was like yep. just enough for them to have to like add into an already like ever complex system without them forgetting it right they yeah. have to remember all the rules that came before and then so what we realize is no they just need one more simple thing because yeah. they're trying to remember what came out in may and april and march and february and that's a lot to take in yeah well it's hard to, it's very hard to design a game on multiple levels i mean just in general right there's not a lot of board games that have pulled that off so yeah um, I'm also curious, uh, when you guys working together, so I've never worked, I mean, I've worked with other designers, but I've never worked in a, I guess what you'd say, a equal partnership. <laughs> it's, I, it's always been either, you know, I'm uh, assisting someone else or other people are assisting me, right? Like at the end of the day, there's sort of still one person who makes the call, right? Mm -hmm. um, what happened when you guys disagreed? Usually we talk it out. Right. And, and then come to agreement. Often, one or the other of us will, um, I don't want to say back down because it sounds like it's a big deal. Like, we, right. like, you know, like, fine, you won, but you owe me one. Like, it was, we never got to that point. Sometimes I would say, like, okay, look, I, I like it and you don't. Can we at least leave it in and see how the playtesters react? 
Mm-hmm. And that would usually confirm my opinion or his opinion. Mm-hmm. Right. Like, and I think there were times in both cases, one of us would be like, you know, I didn't think that was going to work, but people kind of liked it. So I can right. see it now. I saw it in action or yeah, no, you were right. No one liked that. You know, I'll send an apology note to the play testers right. of why that didn't work. But by and large, um, Matt and I just happen to work very well together. I've worked with other designers that for a variety of reasons, it, it isn't as smooth, right? Like that sure. we just have fundamentally different ideas of what the game should be. And since there isn't someone who gets to say, this is the way the game is like, we just, eh, okay, we're not going to work together. Like no hard feelings. We like doing things differently. Let's move on. Right. Um, so everyone's different. Matt and I happen to dovetail nicely. He is more um, detailed in some ways. I'm a little broader in some mm-hmm. ways. I think a lot of people assume that I'm the I'm the one who likes to throw really hard, mischievous things that make you mad, but often they're mats. And I'm like, mm-hmm. everyone blames me, but you're the <laughs> one who's like, how about if we do this to them? Yeah. Um, Matt says, and I never realized it, but that like what I tend to do is we'll keep revisiting things and being like, it's good, but is it really the best, right? Like mm-hmm. this like thing that we thought we had solved and kind of works still feels like it could be better. Mm-hmm. And um, so I think I drive us back to like double check things, but then I will be sloppier in execution. Like eh, everyone understands what this means. This rule is like, no. And then like, he'll make sure that the wording and the, and the power and the, and the action is like really, really tightly written. And if we can't get it really tightly written, then then we have to change it until it can be tightly written. So we each have things that we're willing to drill down on. Right. Um, but, and then there's there's times where one of us will go off and say stuff and the other person will like, I have no idea what you, just like, you clearly just got excited about something, but can you say all of that again? Because I couldn't follow any of it. Right, right. Yeah. Um, well, that's cool. I mean, yeah, it seems clear you guys have a pretty good working relationship. Um, and, uh, it's, it sounds like, it seems like the solution you guys have is whenever there is something you guys can't come to resolution on, you just essentially pin it as an open issue. Like you don't pretend like you guys resolve the problem. You just said like, you just say like, okay, here's this thing. We're still in disagreement, but we're going to, we're going to basically see what happens. So we yeah. can revisit it. Right. Yeah. As opposed to pretending like someone won the argument. Right. Yeah. No, it's just an open issue. And, and most of the time one or the other will not ask for for that most of the time like we can resolve the issue like where i'll say like okay um you know this is bothering you it's not bothering me so let's talk it through mm-hmm. until you feel more satisfied about it right um, and you know like we could we're good at articulating like here's why it's not a problem for me i don't think this is a problem because i think players will do this and do this and will go oh yeah i hadn't thought about that but it's still a problem because of this and this and i'm like oh right okay and then we can usually find some sort of way to to, to tighten up a problem i'm trying to think of um Something we were talking about in season three the other day, and I can't remember it, where it was like, it didn't bother me, but it bothered it bothered him. Oh, there was a, another one, vice versa. The season three has, a, it's actually a prequel. It's a Cold War thriller. Oh, wow. Yeah. yeah. Sounds interesting. All right. And um, I was wondering what you were going to do if the world is just crazy apocalyptic 70 years in the future or whatever, like where so you we, go from there. That sounds, we, we go back. Uh, it's increasingly s- difficult. 60 years in the past. Right. Okay. Or you know, 55, 60 years. All right. Well, um, I look forward to the the, uh, the Black Plague uh, version of the game. No, yeah, not quite that far back. Um, <laughs> and, and so we're doing a lot of like Cold War espionage type things. And so we wanted Soviet cities and like Western Bloc cities. Right. And it kind of worked, but 
I, it just kept bothering me that other than this had this flag and this had this flag, they, they were too samey, samey. Like it really sure. felt different just to be different in color. Kiev than yeah. New York City in 1962. Like Russia, or not Russia, the Soviet Union was not as good at running their empire as the U.S. was at the time. Like you had lines for toilet paper, mm -hmm. right? And yeah. so it was all like the prologue was all pretty much working. And then this is where it's like me talking and going back and I'm saying, look, I really want to revisit this again. I want to feel like if I'm in Kiev or, uh, or something that the world feels different than if I'm in uh, New York, than if I'm in Africa, like colonial Africa in the 1960s. And then right. I finally said it in such a way he goes, Oh, I see. Like I said, look, let's just, so let's just design. Great. Just pull something off to the side. And we designed it. And then he's like, okay, I don't think this is the execution, but I now finally get the problem, like what's bugging you. And then we found a different solution right. that works. So that's like a good example of how we. Cool. How did you, how did you solve it? Um, yeah, I'm trying to think of when this, uh, when this interview is coming out, right? A lot of stuff's going to change. Sure. I mean, you, it, it, we can just say it as like, this was your idea as of right now for how to solve it, right? <laughs> yeah, well, people <laughs> might not even know when it comes out that it's set in the Cold War. Yeah. Right. That's the thing is we we were a little disappointed with season two that the b box bottom like someone took a picture and it leaked and we we might do for season three just like really tight um, control on on PR. Right. Um. So uh, basically, what we are ending up doing is in pandemic for the first time. There's there's different actions. Mm -hmm. Right. Like you know, in regular pandemic, everyone can cure. Mm -hmm. um, but in this game. Um, depending on whether if you're a, a Soviet player or you're a U.S. player. Okay. Like this, the Soviet player can't travel around the board as freely because their air hmm. system isn't as nice. Right, okay. And as new actions come out, actions will either be neutral, which is it doesn't matter who you are, or they'll be like, nope, only NATO players can use this action, or nope, only Soviet players can use this action. Okay. And so different players will have access to a different subset of actions in the game. So... It's not just I'm the medic, so I can remove all the cubes. It's I'm Yergi, and I'm mm -hmm. a Soviet, so I can't do what you can do, but I can do this. Just underlying because of my of where I am in the world and what my identity is. So um, is there is there limited movement between the you know communist parts of the world and the the it's, uh, yeah the it's communist it's, parts? It's easier for the Western bloc people to fly around their network. Like mm -hmm. you don't have, you can just show a card rather than discard a card. This oh, I mean, I mean between, like if you want no, to go so from it, France it, to, you know, Czechoslovakia or whatever. So what it is, is you, you have to drive in, you can't fly in. Okay. And, and it, it's hard. It's much harder to fly across like to opposing factions. Yeah. And most of the time you'll be fine, but it's sometimes like the infection deck, you'll draw a card and like, you'll be in trouble if you're in enemy territory, hmm. right? If you're behind enemy lines. Does the, do the diseases have a harder time spreading across you know, ideological borders? Uh, there are no diseases at the beginning. Well, but there will be eventually. Yeah, let's assume there are. <laughs> I haven't actually designed the spread of diseases yet. Oh, okay. I was just thinking that, like, I can sort of imagine, like, the world being kind of split into two halves, right? And, like, yeah, there's a disease in East Germany, but it's much more likely to spread to, like, Poland or Czechoslovakia than it would be to West Germany because of um, freedom of movement. I love that idea. That's going in the game. <laughs> okay. Well, it's funny because that's, it seems like a really rich theme because, you know, the pandemic assumed free movement, right? And you yes. did have localized diseases, which was cool. I mean, that, that totally makes sense. But like with this, I almost kind of imagine 
this this concept and it's, it's it's interesting it's great to have this experience i think like when you're a designer and you have your theme for your game and you tell it to someone and then they just tell you like oh this is what i imagine the game is right yeah right? no without, this is great please keep talking being like like polluted okay so what i'm imagining almost is like there'll be some players who are you know on the communist side and they have to solve stuff in their part of the world right and then there's players on the free side and they have to solve stuff on their part of the world. And then there's certain ways the diseases do kind of jump across the line, if that makes sense. Yeah. No, my initial interesting thing is that um, the the diseases, you know, when they when they outbreak, they in regular pandemic, there are. And this is where the conversation started with Matt and I. I'm like, it's kind of funny that in pandemic, like there are it's a it's a global community. Like you can fly uh, anywhere and do anything and you can land. It doesn't matter like if you're going into North Korea or something like that. Like everyone's right. just like, sure, come take care of our problems. Yeah. And so we started talking about what about a game where the, the world really felt like more fractured. We yeah. also started this the day after Donald Trump was elected. So <laughs> <laughs> okay, topical. Excellent. So it, it, it definitely we knew we were kind of going to be doing this Cold War thing, but it definitely has sort of mind. I mean, the fact of like Russia and U.S. Yeah. relations, I'm like, well, aren't, didn't we get lucky or yeah. unlucky in a way, at least that we're making something that hopefully will still feel timely. Actually, I would love it not to feel timely by the time it comes out. Sure, um, of uh, let me yeah. See. Let but me say one other thing that yeah. pops in my mind, which is that, so I imagine like thematically and this, you can, I can imagine a lot of ways to make this work in terms of mechanics, but you know, if you talk to me about like, well, there's, there's Soviet scientists or Chinese scientists, then there's like American ones and, you know, British ones or whatever. Um, I almost imagine a situation like, okay, there's these epidemics growing around the world, but the, you know, the um, communist versus the capitalist government still don't trust each other. And you almost imagine like the scientists having to like work with each other secretly. You understand what I mean? Yep. Like without their governments finding out, like we're going to, you know, pandemic could be like figuring out a way to trade cards essentially without the governments finding out that you did. Like you, you have like the secret meeting in what was one of the neutral countries like Yugoslavia or, Sweden or Africa or, or South or America. Af yeah, exactly. You know, Iran or something, you know, like you meet there where the, where the governments can't see you and that's how you're able to trade information with the so, scientists on the other side. Yeah. Just to give you like a little bit more context, cause you learned this right in the prologue is all of the players are actually CIA and anyone who's playing a Soviet is a double agent. So it basically oh. says mm -hmm. like, it okay. says like, okay, you're going to need to get a Soviet cover and go undercover. Like you're still on the CIA, but you're going to need to maintain that you're actually working for them. So you're a Soviet person working behind the lines, but you're actually still looking for opportunities to trade data with, with your Western counterparts. Your idea is interesting, but we're not actually, at least of right now, not having the players be on different I see. factions. Okay. You just have um, different identities which i really like like at the beginning of the game you get and this will probably be most of this will be in the final game in some form is you get a passport and you get your first fake identity okay but there's blank pages with the idea being that you'll build other identities like it'll be a spy thriller so like i might be a a soviet uh, doctor who's you know helping the plague and then i can go to a safe house and flip to a different page and now i'm a businessman from bangladesh or something who's traveling and I get a different set of powers depending on what my identity is. Like it's a little bit of a, you know, the, the, the spy movie where someone has eight passports with different names and different contexts and, and stuff like that. So we're playing like, so you're know, treating, you're treating the, the Soviet bloc as kind of like essentially just hostile territory. Yes. It's like... a, it's a, it's a hostile territory. We're, we're framing them as a cold war thrower where they're the, they're the bad guys. And, right. right. Hmm. So, so which is different than what you were thinking, but yeah. Um, it works for our meta plot. 
Yeah. We'll no, no, that. that's that's fine. I mean, there's I think there's just a lot of ways you could go with that that theme. Um, and it, I'm I. I think it was a good idea to go backwards because you can kind of probably you can only go into the future so much. So. No, no, yeah, no, and this this sets up right. Like we we told season one, and then season two is well, what happens after, and then season three ends up being like, well, what led to season one? Right. Yeah. Right. Like in in sort of a weird way. Yeah. Or actually, uh, yeah, I don't want to spoil too much, and it's all up in the air. But yeah. there is an underlying meta plot between the three seasons that hopefully people find enjoyable and not like. All right, that was a little bit much. I just wanted to play a board game. Like, calm down with your, right, know, sure. with with your trilogy of of story. Yeah, hmm, but it's cool. fun to try. Yeah, well, if it's in the Cold War, though, I think it's definitely important to have that sense of like there's going to be a lot of nodes that are like kind of like weakly connected. You know, in terms of like, yeah, these cities are close to each other, but the people don't actually go back and forth very much. So. No, I think that was really interesting in the sense that like, if a disease would do an outbreak from a city. I'm mm-hmm. wondering if it only outbreaks if the cities next to them are the same ideology. Right. So Soviet cities will only outbreak into other Soviet cities. So if you've yeah. got East Berlin, we have, which is technically connected to like Paris, but East Berlin and Paris won't outbreak into each other. Right. Because yeah. there's not enough stuff going back and forth. That's the like, ooh, exciting thing that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That sort of feels, feels thematic. So you'll end up with these horrible messes within the, an ideology. Right. Hmm. Interesting. Cool. Well, that sounds sounds like a really neat, neat concept for season three. So, yeah, we've been at it for a, a couple months now. So as long as this interview doesn't come out until nineteen, <laughs> sure. I think we're good. If you're gonna do it earlier, I may have you cut a lot of this stuff out. I'll 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 wait. I'll just wait. I mean, there's no okay. reason to cut. You know, I can yeah. I can just stack it up until it's it's ready. Okay. Um, cool. Um. All right. Well, then maybe we should. Uh, I'm trying to think. I don't think there's anything else. Oh, I should. <laughs> this is more of just a comment than anything else. My um, when we were finishing up Offworld, um, I had to watch sadly as most of the rest of the office was playing two campaigns of Pandemic Legacy, <laughs> and I was just I was just far too busy to to go through with it. Um, but uh, my my business partner, art director uh, at Mohawk, had to, said I had to tell you about how their game finished okay. um, because the. the um, they got to the very, you know, the very end of the game, and I guess there's something you do at the end of the game that basically, mm-hmm. like, you either win or you lose. Like, it's just somewhat straightforward. Of like, uh, yeah, games. I mean, yes, you need to achieve a certain number. Uh, it's micro things. Like, you need to do X to all the cities that are Y. Okay. The way he described it is, they had three characters alive at that point, I think, and basically, like, one character did one of those things and died in the process. And yeah. The next character did one more of those things and died in the process, and then the last character, last living person, did the last thing to win the game. That's and, amazing. And they won, and they were they were like, "Well, I can't imagine it could have gone <laughs> possibly better." You know, like you couldn't have scripted it better. Uh, because actually, the alternative of like, like you almost get to the end, and you're one step away, and the last guy dies right before you do it. Like that sounds pretty, <laughs> pretty sad. But yeah, yeah that would be pretty. Crazy pretty gruesome but like well in december we give you two chances to do everything you need to do and we always give you like basically zero level grunts so if Uh your characters die you can always just play as i think it's a civilian and you have no powers and you have nothing special but if they're playing the first half of december Mm -hmm. and they end up coming up a little short and i'm glad that they didn't because it's a much better story their way they could they would they not have known that they would have had another crack at it no no and unless it was already the second half of december Okay, it, yeah, I don't know right. whether it was the first Yeah, episode. I know it's the first half. Well, like, I don't want to ruin the story. I don't really actually care about, like, breaking down the details. But, yeah. you know, we Matt and I did realize 
Like we did try to make it that 80 or 90% of the people would end on an up note, right? That sure. you, that yeah. you, it wasn't like, oh, this is easy. We can't lose. Like you still felt that you could lose, but it was hopefully if you ended up doing things right and didn't get like a lot of bad luck in the card deck and kind of knew what you were doing that it would be tense, but about two thirds of the way through that game, you'd be like, I think we're going to do this and then end on a, you know, like a traditional Western movie. I mean, not Western, like a traditional American movie or book, like good guys, one sort of moment. Right. That's cool. Yeah. Yeah. They were, they were very happy. <laughs> well, hopefully they'll like season two. Yeah. 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 Uh, all right, cool. Well, let's talk about Skyfall. Seafall. Um, sea, sorry. Skyfall. Skyfall was the James Bond movie. <laughs> let's talk about Seafall then instead. Um, and uh, so, yeah, it is interesting to remember that you started this way before you started Pandemic Legacy. Um, and this was like the first thing. This was So was this your first concept of like what where to go to next after Risk Legacy? Yeah, it really was. I left Hasbro and... Um, it's funny, I think a lot of people are like, well, yeah, you couldn't really start on anything until you left, but you did, right? I'm like, no, man, I was going back and forth to Rhode Island. I was burnt out. Like, yeah. I was just like, no, nah, I'm going to stop. And I literally left Hasbro, and by the time I got home, I had an email from a person there saying, hey, I want to give you, like, a consulting job. Like, And so I, I kind of moved into not having to worry immediately the first day about making some money. Right. Um, and then... Uh, I was like, ah, I want to do like a piratey adventure, sailing the seas and finding islands sort of thing. Because I'd come out of Risk Legacy knowing that people really like those packets, like the unknown. And I'm like, can I sell a blank game board? Yeah. Like, right. here's the open sea. You're a boat. Like, yeah. there's nothing like, it's almost seemed like a bit punk rock and brash. Like, I'm selling you empty cardboard. And, you right. know, and eventually it didn't become that, but it was an interesting place. I'm like, what if... Instead of having, like, I think Risk Legacy has seven things you can open. I'm like, what if this had, like, hundreds? Like, mm -hmm. first you find an island, and that's new. And then on the island are, like, ten unexplored spaces. Right. And so each one of those gets explored. And so I started with this whole thing of exploration, and I'm a big D&D &D player, and I love maps. Mm -hmm. And so I kind of started where you just had, like, two ships, and you were already, like, out at sea. Like, the mainland was, um, like, far behind you. Right. And started working on the game. And then somewhere like in the first year, people said like, I, I don't really feel like I'm a, a extension of a, an original empire. I just feel like I'm a captain on a ship. Like, where's my home? Where's my mainland? Can I send stuff back? And so then the, then the coast crept in. Then you could build buildings. Then you could burn down other people's fields. So that kind of quickly changed. That was six months into it. Um and then, it, and then I dreamt the ending for good or for ill. I'm just like, okay, that's unexpected, which gave me sort of like the theme. I knew where we were starting, and then also I had the ending, and then it was a matter of mapping in between. Mm -hmm. um, and what, and I just, you know, threw down a bunch of crazy ideas. But I think realistically, I had a lot of good narrative ideas and a lot of good like gimmicks. But like I was mentioning earlier before, I was so excited to get to like game six where this gimmick could happen. I, I should have just played game one, game one, game one, game one, right? Like, and just made it. Um, saying I think game one is I think game one is good I think game four is great and that's part of the problem is when I had all the rules in in game one people were really overwhelmed so like I did with risk and everything else I'm like okay you get these gate rules after like game one or two and you get these rules after game three or four and now all the pieces are there and then I put a prologue on so now I'm asking people to play eight to ten hours before they get to the game that I want them to be playing right and, and um, that may be too much to be asking people um and that's, sorry, just to be clear, is that 
the version of the game that that is now or yeah is no that... that is a version of the game that okay so the game was kind of done and i brought it up to z-man who owned plaid hat at that point because due to some personnel issues they thought or or scheduling issues they thought their art director might be doing it not plaid hats art art director okay so i brought it up to play with them and then they 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 had some issues where the, where the game landed. And I think to some extent they were right, but on another extent they were wrong. And, you know, it was like me trying to make sure the publisher was happy. So I made a lot of changes at the last minute. Some mm-hmm. good ones were um, added an event deck into the game mm-hmm. that um, every round you do a new event. and But the event deck, because it's a legacy game, um, evolves as you go. Like the event deck starts pretty boring and pretty positive and straightforward at the beginning. And then there are milestones in the game. So every time you do a milestone, it comes with a new event card that goes into the event deck, which is sort of the fallout of what milestone you did. Mm-hmm. Um, so a milestone is like the first time someone sinks someone else's ship on the high seas, which, you know, like there's been a truce for a long time. And okay, so now this card goes in and it's this kind of reminder. So I thought that coming out of it was cool. Um, something that came out of it that was a little bit uh, problematic in retrospect is they played it and... They really didn't like that right from game one you were making permanent choices. There's this concept of enmity in the game where you can piss off other provinces or the locals like the on the yeah. on the islands and then mm-hmm. you might put you put stickers on the board that shows like they hate you now. And yeah. it's a good concept. Um, but one person played said, Well, I've made all these choices and now I have two islands that hate me and I wouldn't play this game again because Right, like I would feel like I've already lost. Like I want to be able to yeah. play or play around and not have these consequences. So I'm like, you know what? I was working on season two at that point of pandemic, right? And I said, we put a prologue in. Let me put a prologue in, which I think, by and large, work. But it's a little bit patched on, and the writing is a little bit sloppy because I right. was like, I just was like a couple weeks from the ending. So what is describe what's the purpose of the prologue of a so, prologue in these type of games because you brought so the purpose of the prologue is to be able to play a standard non-legacy game so when you start doing permanent ah. changes you're not like oh right the first time you play any game so it's a just, practice game it's a practice game yeah because it's funny like when when you when playing a lot of games i often just make that distinction like you know like we're gonna okay I'm gonna, we're gonna teach you whatever Catan for the first time like this is a practice game and you know blah 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 and like that doesn't mean anything you're still playing the game you're still trying to win but somehow you've given it this like aura of like this game doesn't matter it's not real you know? right <laughs> somehow people get more comfortable in that situation it's in, exactly in... exactly what we're doing with these prologues here's yeah. a practice game get your head around it because there are actual consequences so in seafall yeah. like people didn't want enmity and people didn't want to feel like they were going to um, go out to sea and get attacked right like yeah. i wanted them to explore and learn like here's how i work on a turn i play this card i do this this is the yeah. dice resolution and i also wanted you to um the islands the first four islands on the board start out um relatively unexplored and it makes for like a little bit of a slow first year right and so one of the things that people do is they explore the heck out of these islands so that when you start your first real game with legacy stuff and consequences the islands have two to five things explored on them depending on what you did in the first game so now you have more goods and the economy is richer so So some stuff some permanent stuff can happen they're just not going to be tied to your Character. Yeah, there's the exploration is permanent, but there's no negative stuff. Like what you do is you walk through the end of the game and say, "Oh, you won, so you would get to do this." Oh, that's good. I like winning. Yeah, and yeah. and we lost, so we would get to do this. Okay, that's not bad. And here's how enmity works. Like, oh wow, all that stuff I did out there on that island, they'd be really mad at me. Okay, I got it. Um, so the problem was, I think the the prologue by and large does what it wants to do. I think narratively it doesn't do, but mechanically it does as this practice game. Right. 
But then because it was at the very end, what I didn't do is go back and look at game one again. And game one is also kind of a practice game. I see. So you play two prologues. Yeah. And so you play it and you're like, let's try game one. And then game one is again, because that had been in place for years, kind of a hand-holding first game. Yeah, yeah. It seems like a prologue is now kind of part of your best practices in general, maybe when, when approaching these type of games. And it just wasn't, obviously, when you started it, right? So... I always kind of said I wanted a game zero, but I didn't, it would be one of the last things I did, which was completely accurate. But what I needed to do was go back, play the prologue and then immediately play game one. And I would have said, no, 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 this is too slow. Now that I have this whole thing where you've learned all the stuff, game one, I need to come out like, need to come out swinging. Yeah. Man, those first few games are so key in a legacy game because, I mean, think of all the good stuff you have in the back half that a lot of people might not see if they have some issues with those first few games. Um, yeah, that's actually the, my favorite thing I've ever put in any game, especially, you know, any legacy game or any game is found about three quarters of the way through Seafall. And I know that like 20% of the groups that start it will find it, but I guess it's a reward for (laughs) like, for the people who really like it. Yeah. Like the game, it's like a huge payoff from them. Yeah. Um, but I feel bad. Like I kept trying to get the, it to happen earlier. People like, you need this to come out earlier. I'm like, it, no, it needs to come out here. Because I need you to have done this and done this and lived this and be feeling this. So when it happens, it, it's more meaningful, right? right? Um, it's nothing like this, but the analogy would be like, um, you know, you Luke Skywalker meets Obi-Wan. He starts asking about Darth Vader and he's like, oh, by the way, he's your father. So you should, you know, like it kind of <laughs> like kind of loses its moment if you yeah. haven't seen him as a bad guy for almost yeah. two movies. So it's, right. it's that sort of pacing that was necessary. Yeah. Um, I want to jump back to one thing you talked about Seafall earlier about, which is that issue of like people coming to grips with like whether they should be winning the game or winning the campaign and how do you balance stuff across that? Um, and uh, how did you resolve that problem? Um, I, I think by and large it works. Um, so there's a couple different things of balancing it. Like most of the time you reset things back to start. Yeah. What I give for the winners as a reward because you're playing the same faction, the same province every time Mm -hmm. is i give you a power that overall makes you better but not in the next game like it's kind of a backgroundy good power okay but does i give do you mean it literally does not apply to the next game no it applies but it's sort of like at the beginning of the game you're going to get extra gold Uh so it doesn't hurt but it's not going to be like a deal breaker but if you get that on game two and you're going to get it for 12 games over the course of 12, yeah, sure. 13 games, it, it gives you a, a significant advantage. And if you win again and you win again, and now you've built three or four of these things, your province has, has bloomed. And are you counting on players to self-balance between each other? Like, a little you know, bit. Like risk? Well, a little bit. Um, the, one of the hardest things I didn't see fall. So there's like four main guilds. There's the Explorer's Guild, the Military Guild, the Builder's Guild, and the Merchant's Guild. And I, I've changed the name so many times. I may have, it may be a right. soldier's, soldier's guild. Um, Explorer's guild always work great. Builder's guild, merchant's guild. Mer- Merchant guild is probably the weakest one to win with, but it felt mm-hmm. like it was a good one to have. The problem was always the soldier's guild, which is if you were attacking the islands, it was great. Yeah. If you're playing like the merchant explorer and I'm the soldier and you go out to sea and all I do is raid your lands mm-hmm. and steal all your stuff, like you're really disappointed and you have to then become a soldier strategy as well because my soldiering is messing with your ability to do your strategy. Like if okay. you're merchanting it becomes, and I... It becomes kind of zero sum. 
Like, and I think to... we talked about this on a podcast oh, okay. a couple years ago, like we were trying so, to solve it. And you yeah. had talk, talked about various ways because this was a big problem. So I somehow had to get the Soldier's Guild and the Military Guild to be effective for a player without it causing everyone else to change their strategy to be defensive with them. And Enmity yep. kind of does that. The downside to that is if we all want to get you because you're in the lead, the way mm -hmm. the game is supposed to allow us to get you is by attacking. Yeah. But now I've kind of crippled attacking so that sure. we can't really get you. Yeah. And so there was a lot of balancing stuff. And I, I mean, like I spent a year trying to figure out how to get the like game engine, like stuff between games work. I spent like a year trying to get the soldiering stuff to work. Yeah. And both of them mostly work. Yeah. Um, but if the main tool I give you to balance stuff out is the thing that I had to handicap so uh, it didn't get out of hand, it, that's a little tough. What I said is I wanted to give everyone a little club, mm -hmm. but no one a big club. So three sure. players with little clubs could pick on one person and, and add up to a big club, but that, yeah. that other person also just has a little club. So if they're the odd man out, they can't really do much damage. And that was a design philosophy I kept trying to, to work with. Um, yeah. What I ended up calling, I was very careful. I called the Soldiers Guild did raids. Like, you mm. don't have war. I mean, sort of. There's something. You, um, you, I wanted to be like, you are a raider. Like, you go in and you steal something and you leave. Like, you don't take over someone's government. You don't, like, get into a state of hostilities. You don't have, like, a naval blockade. A lot of things that I played with over the, the years just didn't make sense. I wanted it to be a real tactical thing. Like, I either can steal this to win the game, or I can steal this to keep you from winning the game, or you're mm -hmm. about to win your third game in a row, and it's worth it for me to steal it from you. And then there's, um, there's a sense that, uh, I'm trying to think of how to best explain it. Like, there's, there's rankings in the game. Like, based, you, you accumulate glory game over game, and whoever has the most glory at the end of the campaign becomes the emperor and reunites the provinces. Right. So in every any game, there's a ranking card. Like, I know you're in first and I'm in second and someone else is in third. Right. And there's ways to balance with that, like at the beginning of the game. You in first place, not right at the beginning of the campaign, but pretty close thereafter. Mm -hmm. Like, you have to actually give some of your enmity tokens out to the the players at the bottom. They just hate you okay. for, for winning. Right. <laughs> so, like, if immediately, like, if you're in a five-player game... The person in fifth place will have an enmity token of the people in first, second, and third. So, like, they already start out being able to sort of raid them or attack them really at no cost, no problem. They're just like, I hate oh, okay. you, you're winning. Right. Um, it gives them an in-game excuse for aggression. It gives them an in-game excuse and sort of a consequence-free excuse. Or, yeah. right, and and what enmity, if I have your enmity token, it's two things. Either it acts as a, a defense for me, like if you come raid me, it's going to be harder because I already hate you. Or I right. can attack you and merely return your enmity token right? Um, as like, hey, now we're good. Sure. So by, by giving them to the lower provinces, it allows them to either just defend so they can go out without consequences or like they don't have to spend as much energy defending or they can do a raid with no consequences. So there's some stuff right. in there. And then there's a couple advisors or characters that say like, if you are raiding someone with a higher ranking than you, mm -hmm. um. Like, you only pay one enmity no matter how much you owe, because you might right, owe right, three right. or four. So if I'm losing and I get that guy, I can go raid your treasure room for one enmity, not five, because I'm losing. So there's some there's some rules and there's some advisors that try to allow the people who are losing to attack more freely than the people who are winning. Sure. Uh, yeah. Um, no, it's, that's really interesting. I mean, game, obviously, games like Risk 
Um, and probably the one that stuck more in my mind is History of the World. Um, like, or those games are like, it seems like half the time is spent discussing why you should attack someone else and why it's so excusing your own, like, I'm going to attack you. And these are the reasons why I feel justified in doing so. Yeah. Um, and I think it's really, a really interesting idea to like put actually an in-game mechanic in place that kind of like shortcuts that argument of like, well, I'm attacking you because look here, I have this little token that I have, I have three of your tokens because you attacked me. And so clearly like I'm hostile and there's also this, um, incentive if, if you attack me and the game's played like six turns and then there's a winter and then it's the next year and if i can hold on to your tokens till the beginning of next year they get even more powerful i end up being at war with you mm-hmm. which gives me even bigger boosts than yep. than before so it's like you attack me in, in year one and i'm like that's cool i'm gonna keep doing my thing and then mm-hmm. year two i'm gonna be able to really like hit back because like we had a winter to rally up our people and go so a lot of levers to try to pull to make attacking not the crippling strategy, but make it a viable option if you're losing. And um, I've seen some games where there's very few player versus player combat and somewhere there's a lot and the game plays very differently. Sometimes people are like, nah, we don't really attack each other. We're just out exploring and it's kind of a race to see who can get the most glory first. And other ones are, you know, you have wronged me and I sink your ship and you sink my ship and we're at war and like we're just burning through enmity right. really quickly. And also there's a limit. You get, gosh, it's uh, eight, I think eight, six or eight enmity tokens. Mm-hmm. Eight. You get eight enemy tokens, and when they're all gone, you just can't attack. Hmm. Like you have been like, like, and so you can't just go in and like, yeah, I'm attacking you, I'm attacking you. I'm like, you, it's like these are the, it's like jerk points. These are the number of jerk points that I get, and you can spend them against the islands, or you can spend them against each other. Um, But it sort of provides also a a cap, and and it's funny. I don't even give a narrative reason for it. It's just like (laughs) no, you you can't. Right, right, right. Like I used to have like that. There was some far away. pontiff like the pope you know yeah. who like puts you under like like censures you like no and yeah. i'm just like i don't i don't need it yeah no one no one's complained about it yeah no that's, you don't have to explain anything you don't yeah. have to explain everything yeah i'm not surprised we talked about it because this is reminding me all sorts of stuff about the black market and off world and like we solved solved the problem by doubling the cost of the club every time you used it um, yeah so just at some point the cost is gonna you know no matter how much you want to hurt another player the cost is going to outweigh the benefit you know yeah um the uh, you know okay well we were talking about balancing the single player the the single games versus the campaign games and like um so how does it work in terms of like is there when they get nearer to the end of the campaign is it is there a point where it's pretty clear that one player is going to win and like is there an issue with motivation at that point or um probably i think i've heard a little about that what it is is um in game one you need to get 11 glory and then mm-hmm. it goes up by one for every game thereafter, and it caps at 24. Okay. So the idea is, and you keep track of cumulative glory yeah. from game over game. It's like a bowling score. So what I wanted people to do is not be like, well, I'm not going to win this game. I'm just going to stop playing. Instead, be like, well, I want to get a couple more points of glory because it adds to my total score. So you're always incentivized within a right. game to keep going. But since the totals go up, the um, the rewards for milestones also go up. Like okay. the stakes get higher, yeah. which I think mm-hmm. some people have had some trouble with, but it's in there and it's worked by and large, which is like, oh, I'm 25 points behind you, but then I have a really good game where I end up because of the bonuses I get for being in last and the restrictions you get for being in first, I end up winning a game like I get 19 points and you were barely out of the gate and you got five. So I just made up 14 points right? like in a, in a big chunk because I got a milestone that was worth like seven, mm-hmm. right? And so by making the milestones increase in value 
the idea was hopefully the people who had all the incentives to win a game by being behind would do it now could be they're not good players or the person who's winning is a really good player and that will just make the gulf get get higher okay and is there is there a specific threshold for victory or is it just 12 games that's it uh it is when you get to the island at the end of the world oh okay um whoever has the most glory becomes the emperor at that point so you can tell when you're getting close but it's in the player's hands of when it'll happen okay does that mean that whoever's in the lead might start pushing towards getting to that that last island is that kind yeah of so works? what happens is if you're in the lead you're going to start pushing towards getting to that last island and we're all going to be trying to win the game before you do so so it might yeah. be the idea is like you get to like game 12 and you want to do it but maybe it takes till game 14 that you do in the meantime in game 12 and game 13 everyone else has built up their their glory to kind of catch up mm-hmm. um yeah and also then what happens is hopefully you get to close to the end, like finding the island at the end of the world is worth a ton of points. So if you're at all within striking distance, like suddenly the person in second and third might go, hey, if I find it before you do, then I'm going to leapfrog over you and win the campaign. So right. there's two things coming together is if it's just one person in the lead. Everyone else might stall them and catch up. And then when you're close enough, then there's many people who want to do it to yeah. try to get it. All right. Does that does that work? It seems to have worked. I haven't. It's hard for me to get data like you get in the digital world. I would have to go to Board Game Geek and like comb through a bunch of data and meanwhile read a bunch of people ranting that they don't like the game or they do like this or they don't like this or they wish they had done this. And I'm not sure I'm ready to subject myself to um, all of the data that I can't really change at this point. If like people, if it was out of print and it had been like five years and a new publisher said, hey, I want to bring it back in print, but I want to do a second version and clean up some yeah. of the things people didn't like. I'd be like, cool, let me dig in and and do it. But I find whether my game is successful or not successful, I don't really read the reviews because yeah. I either feel too good about myself from a good review or too bad about a bad review, and there's nothing yeah. I can do in either case. Yeah, it's so different. It's like, couldn't be more different from video games, right? Like, we have all the data we want available easily, and we can actually do something about it. You know, yeah. like you're, you're the opposite. You kind of, you just have to, you know, try to figure stuff out kind of anecdotally. And what's the point? <laughs> well, some, I mean, the point, yeah, level. I mean, to some extent, the point is, let's say, I mean, Seafall didn't do as well as Pandemic Legacy, which I knew it would, right? Like, right. it's not like I'm going to keep having this awesome success after awesome yeah. success. It's an unrealistic goal. Um, and I could go in and go, well, well, why? Right. And really try to do it. So then on my next project, I don't make mistakes from my old project. That's perfectly legitimate. But I get enough of that from a Twitter feed or random people coming up to me on Aztec conventions and telling me good or bad things in the emails where people have trouble with the rules and then they Mm -hmm. want to make a point of saying something. I had a guy call me at nearly midnight last (laughs) week to tell me that uh, to complain about the grammatical mistakes in the rule book of Seafall. Wow. I have since removed my phone number from my website. <laughs> yeah, I was. I, well, it's impressive. It's just up there. That's. Uh... <laughs> well, it was my business phone when yeah. I set it up, and I still had a home phone. But it, yeah, and, sure. you know, at some point, my home phone went away, and it became my only Weird. phone. Yep, yep. And it has led to me getting some business and some work, and it was good. But now I'm in the process of, um, you know, just setting up like a Google phone as sure. a business phone that will yeah, yeah, email yeah. me when I to check a message. But yeah, yeah. I was like, hey, it's midnight. He's like, yeah. Oh, did I wake you? I'm like, yeah. He's like, oh, well, while I have you. <laughs> and, and, I was, and I was sort of captivated, right? People are like, I would have flipped out. I'm like, I'm kind of marveling that I kept going, 
Yeah, I'm sorry. There's not much I can do about that. It's midnight, right? And just waiting for the person to get the social cue. And it was like a three-minute conversation, but it shouldn't have happened at all. Yeah. So I do get feedback even when I don't go to look for it. And I have a pretty good sense from, like, my developer giving me feedback and other people. I can send them out and be like, hey... You know, Seafall seemed to get some some negative things here. Can you summarize the couple points you're seeing? And they'll go through and they won't care. And they're like, yeah, here are the four things that people sure. are complaining about. Right, yeah, yeah. Do people So do people do the thing where they tank games early on to, like, benefit them later? No, like, it doesn't do they, work anymore. Oh, that's just... that. Oh, because there's no carryover between games. There's or, minimal like, carryover and you're, you're looking for a combined glory score. Right, right. I got it. Okay. I think people where people get frustrated is the... Uh, increasing milestone glory mm-hmm. um and so i wanted the games to be like an about half an hour per player so like an hour and a half to two maybe two and a half if you have five players or people acting right. slowly and so i wanted the games to not take too long so by increasing the points that you needed and increasing the milestones it kept the game sort of about the same length but what mm-hmm. it means is it gets a little swingier as you go like we're all getting into the game and then Soren did this like back-to-back combo and got two milestones that we didn't see, and then the game was over, and it was a little frustrating because like the engine right. was just getting going, and then it was over. Yeah. I mean, my what I want to say to them is like, well, the milestones are public. You could have done the exact same thing that this person did, but you yeah. didn't see it. Yeah. But I think it leaves a little bit of a bad taste in their mouth sometimes, right? Like that. I'm wondering now, like, should I have kept the milestones lower and kept the glory count lower, and somehow just made it that the games started out at like 40 minutes and stretched into two and a half hours like hindsight's 2020 sure i like it Hmm, cool all right um well before we wrap up i can't help but comment that i see conspiracy on your shelf behind you um which is i think that's the only other time i've ever seen that in the wild because that was one of my favorite games growing up um Um, well i work for restoration games as my uh other company and we take old games that are out of print and restore okay. them and put them back into print we got a kickstarter that just funded while we were talking and mm. um cool so is that and, and is so that... conspiracy is on the list for me oh, to play cool. to evaluate and see if it's worth bringing okay. back people who know it speak very mm. highly of it yeah i've read the rules it seems pretty straightforward i worry without having played it if like there's this weird sense of honor about the whole thing that you're just writing down numbers yeah that was an issue and i played that when i was you know nine or ten so i can't vouch for my complete honesty <laughs> right and that's the thing is you just get some hyper competitive people who um, will realize like if i just lie right now i can win next turn yeah yeah um yeah i suspect so i suspect there probably needs some changes uh because again i probably haven't played in 20 some years but i remember it being really interesting because you know i just hadn't played in a game where you don't you don't have a character Right. right, like the characters are totally independent from the players, and that's like I'm, I'm sure now there are other games that yeah, there's a ton of them now. Like right, yeah. I mean I can't think of one right now, but I've you know many times done like okay, don't take a color because you're not a color. Mm-hmm. Like people just instinctively, I'm the green yeah. guy, and you grab all the green stuff. It's like no, 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 hold on, we're all going to take turns like moving these people around. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so yeah, I think you might want to like I almost imagine like it might be nice to have. Uh, like the money be more like tokens so like you actually have to drop it in a bank or something or like a, a, a thing instead of having to write it down which but it's interesting like... because all you're doing when you're writing it down is um from what i know of the game is i say i'm gonna spend this much on a person or something and you just say covered covered but i don't know how yeah. much it's yeah. covered by yeah 
Right. Oh, Whereas sure. if I can see the tokens, I can be like, oh, they've got fourteen thousand on this guy. And I was. Oh no no I I mean in a in a, a, a secret thing like imagine a piggy bank right where you right. drop it in and you can't see inside. Um. So you'd uh you'd have to you have to literally open it up if you have a challenge right. Um. But uh, yeah, I don't know. I don't know if that would work. But uh, yeah, no, yeah, it was... it's interesting. And you're going down the same road that I went to. I'm like, where I'm like, oh, you keep track of it. But then each player needs a piggy bank for each character on the board. So suddenly you need like 28 really, piggy yeah, banks yeah. that you can tell apart. Yeah, that probably wouldn't work. Um, the yeah. the the cleanest solution is to write it down. They found the cleanest solution. <laughs> it just feels shady as hell. Yeah. that everyone's going to be on the up and up. But then I might say, well, if you're playing a game where people are going to lie and cheat about what they write down in order to win, then uh, not much I can do about it. But right, I right. need to play it first and figure out, like, does it feel like in 2018, like this would be like a really cool game to bring back? Yeah. Yeah, I or, I keep it. Yeah, I keep it around. I actually should play it at the office because it's not long and it's interesting. Um, because I remember it's also a very valid play to, like, say you're going to give money to someone and then not actually give money to someone you know um yeah you give them zero right yeah yeah and uh you try to get someone to kill a character that they think you have a lot of money in but oops you actually don't have any money in them all and uh anyway cool it'd be interesting to see what you think of it so um so it's interesting that some of these games that you're restoring you actually never played before um Um, well i will before i restore them i mean this is one that justin my partner or the president of the company is like hey we should take a look at this so i just bought it on ebay and we found our first line of games and so it's been there like six months it's just something to play but um you know he has his favorites i have my favorites and we ask people to submit games to restorationgames.com and we might see like all of a sudden five people like let's say talk about conspiracy and we're like well we haven't played it but people are talking about it so you know it won't take long to evaluate it and then it could be that we we both love the game and want to make it and we can't get the rights like there's a lot of different factors that go into it right sure or it's almost exactly like another game we want to do that we like better it's like well we already have kind of like a you know espionage themed game we're not going to put two out at the same time so there's thousands of games out of print but that very quickly becomes um a smaller number when it's like we want to make it we can make it we think we can make it better we think there's an audience we can get the rights yeah those sorts of things it's a a fun puzzle yeah well when an old game is a a really unusual mechanic i mean it is it's you know it's worthwhile taking a look. So the one that just funded was Stop Thief. Was that the one? You, was that one you had played before yeah, when you yeah, were Stop, a kid? Yeah. Uh, actually, I don't. I didn't play Stop Thief until we were looking at it. Everyone else had, and I heard of it, and I okay. knew it, and I bought it uh, earlier this year, like right. eight months ago or something. And I played. I'm like, oh yeah, no, we should bring this back. I got it. Right. right. It needs work, and like it's got some clunky stuff. And I just wrote wrote a um an article today for the Kickstarter of like what what we kind of changed or one of the things yeah. that we we changed but i was like this is kind of a no-brainer it's just fun takes like half an hour it it could i mean i'm a businessman especially in this market like when i'm a designer i let myself just make stuff that i think will sell but can have fun but this is Mm -hmm. like i'm a publisher so i think of like well who's the audience and can we get it into target and what's the price point and what's the development costs and i don't know it kind of keeps me real so that when i am a designer i'm not making things that are unmarketable yeah and when i'm a publisher i'm not just thinking about the money but thinking of things are fun it's a, it's a nice left right brain sort of thing yeah huh yeah no that's neat like it's a neat it's a neat concept trying to grab some of these really old games that are you know mostly forgotten but they're still could still be interesting yeah cool all right well i think we're caught up to the present so what i usually like to ask at the end is um what um you know why have you 
dedicated your career to making games? Um, it's an interesting question because I, I think... So when I got this job, I kind of fell into, as we were talking about, like I wanted to be mm -hmm. a role-playing writer and then I fell into board game design. So I think for a long time, I thought, you know, I'm kind of a storyteller because I wanted to be a sketch comedy writer. Or I wanted to write comic books for a while. And it's just that games happen to end up being my medium. Mm -hmm. And I think I undervalued how much I loved board games to begin with and how much I have really grown to love them as I've worked on them. It wasn't like I had a burning passion and then made it a career. Mm -hmm. I had a interesting opportunity to take sort of my love for role-playing games and see how it ported over to board games. Yeah. Because when I went to, when I, there's a couple times in my life where I haven't been a game designer since mm -hmm. I started, like at Hasbro, I, in 2007 or eight, when I was looking for something new, I was, a worked as a, a producer on the digital side. Right. And it killed me that I wasn't making games. Yeah. And then, um, my company, actually published a game called Fun Employed from another designer, and I was doing all the logistics and business stuff, and it killed me that I wasn't designing games but sort of moving games around. And mm -hmm. I've been a professor, which has been very satisfying, but it's never been as much fun as making games. Hmm. So I think it's what happens is I've developed this real love for just saying, like, what do you do for a living? Like, I make board games. And, like, that just feels like who I am now. Right. Because um, every time I step away from it, I go, well, this isn't as fun as making games. Yeah. What do you um, what do you enjoy about making games? I like making games because it's um what's creating something from nothing and it's this mix of it's narrative, it's math, it's materials, it's experience design. Like it really hits on a lot of different things that some other creative mediums don't do. Like I as a designer give a lot of control of the experience to the players, right? I don't tell them what happens. They do it, right? So, like, I love cooking. I could be a cook, but I'm like, here's what's on the plate. Mm -hmm. Eat it. Yeah. Um, it satisfies many of the same things, but I'm not then counting on the the, the customer to finish the design, right, the, to, to complete the experience, and, and games do that. I like board games in particular. I have nothing against digital games. In a different world, I might be making them. Mm -hmm. But what I like about board games, having done it, is... I have to coax so much out of so little, right? Mm -hmm. It's it's a game. It's an industry of pennies, and sometimes it's like I don't have ten more cards. Mm -hmm. Make it work with fifty, not sixty. And so there's all these interesting constraints. And ultimately, what you're looking at is here's some cardboard, maybe a little plastic, maybe a couple blocks of wood, and then a user manual. Mm -hmm. And if that all comes together really well, then the players completely unseen by me, but still working with the materials I gave them have something which is like that moment you talked about in pandemic legacy from your office like mm -hmm. this guy died and then this guy died and then this person like won on the very last turn to the point where your you know your business partner wanted you to tell me about it right like it creates these memorable memorable experiences that i think can resonate in in some cases more than a book or more than a movie or anything like that and then it's you know i was much more of a math person than a uh than an English person in high school. So I still love being able to like, how can I do some interesting things with basic probability mm -hmm. and have it be fun? So it's it's got all these challenges. And I think that the output, if you do it right, can be really cool. Um, I've done this long enough now where I've had people come up to me who are in college or early 20s and said like, oh man, and they'll name some game I made like a long time ago. Like I played that with my dad. Mm -hmm. uh, 
and just have these great memories. I've had people come up and uh, talk about how they played Risk Legacy with uh, a parent who died, mm. and they still have the board. Right. Um, I saw online someone was had cancer and he wanted to like um and it was it was terminal and he and his friends like to keep his mind off it played pandemic legacy and they have the back of the book where you write down your win loss ratio and dates and it goes right down and then december's blank because he died before he finished and they just have that book and they're never going to finish it wow and so these all tend to be morbid what i'm talking about right now i you know i've had uh, i've had people come up to me and just like i had this or just childhood memory or i had this game on my shelf or this is my favorite thing i ever opened up for christmas when i was eight years old and i played it with my brother and we still get together and talk about these great times and i'm like well, cool. I did that. I made mm-hmm. that. Right. Yeah. And it's a lot of work. And every time I start out with a game, I'm incredibly optimistic. It's going to be awesome. And then about three weeks later, I'm thinking I'm never going to get this to work in my life. Mm-hmm. And so I, there's a stubbornness to get through that and ultimately make something interesting. That's kind of a high that I don't get from many other things because it's so much effort to get there. Yeah. Cool. All right. Well, thanks for, uh, thanks for answering all my questions. And uh, I think uh, I think people will uh, will enjoy this. I just gave you like three and a half hours of footage. Yep, yep. yep. <laughs> it's just like the director's cut. I got plenty of content. That's not a problem. <laughs> <laughs>